What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Primetime Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylari. Hope you guys are all having a great start to your week. Hopefully, everybody had a great Easter weekend. I know I did going back home to Southie is always a pleasure. I'm going to start off tonight's episode by talking about BC Baseball. They're playing the baseball beanpot final game today, or I should say tonight. At BC, BC is facing Harvard. Harvard coming in, winning eight of their last nine games, six wins in a row. They started the year very cold. I believe they were 1-13 to start the year. Some close games in there, but did start the year 1-13. Found their footing over the last nine games, 8-1 in their last nine games. And they're giving BC a game right now in the top of the fifth inning. BC is leading 3-2. BC coming in, the number 11 team in the country. Did have a tough weekend, though, down in Kentucky against Louisville. Got swept by Louisville this weekend. Three close games. BC was actually in all three games. They lost 6-4 on Thursday, 9-8 on Friday, and then lost 4-2 on Saturday. Louisville was the 17th-ranked team in the country. They're actually my favorite to win the whole entire College World Series. They're my pick to win it this year. Very good team. You look at their bullpen. Everybody throws 95-96 out of their bullpen. Ton of power in that line. They score a lot of runs. Play the game very well. Don't really have too many errors. And that's what you really need to do. I mean, I talked about in March Madness, the teams that limit mistakes typically win a lot of those big games in tournaments in college and honestly in all sports in general. But in college sports, the teams that limit mistakes typically win in Louisville baseball typically limits their mistakes. They did fall into a, a hole, though, against BC in both games. They were trailing uh, in their first two games. Uh, they were trailing one to nothing in the first game. Right away, BC scored in the first inning. But they ended up finding the footing. Louisville had one run in the second inning, three runs in the fourth. But the main thing that was concerning for BC in that weekend, which I thought if BC won one out of three games, I thought that would be a good weekend. You're traveling to a good ACC opponent. Louisville coming into the season was a top 10 opponent. Every single year recruit very well. They're always very highly regarded in the college baseball world. So going into this weekend, I thought BC took one out of three games. They took one out of three, went one and two, maybe were within... You know, another game where they could have won, and then the other game, you know, they, uh, you know, fell apart. And I thought if they went with one win, one close loss, and one game that just didn't go, go their way, I thought that would have been a good weekend. I thought two and one would have been exceptional. Exceptional, I think, honestly, even more people would have bought into BC baseball if they went two and one this weekend. But I thought one and two would have been a good benchmark for BC. Obviously, this weekend didn't work out. They end up going 0 and 3. But if you look at their games, three very close games. Everything was a two run game or less. 6-4, to 9-8, to 4-2. to BC did have an 8-0 lead in that game on Friday. They scored three runs in the first, two runs in the second inning. And then things just went downhill for BC. Bottom of the second inning, gave up three runs. Bottom of the third inning, gave up five runs. So they each exchanged two innings where they scored three and five runs apiece. Three runs in the first, five runs in the second for BC. Louisville, three runs in the second, five runs in the third. And then after that, BC really couldn't find their footing. Uh, and by the end of the game, Louisville found themselves with a 9-8 to lead and got a run in the bottom of the fifth inning. And that was all she wrote for offense in that game. But BC baseball being in all three games is impressive at the end of the day. And they're obviously playing a team in Harvard tonight who's giving them a good game. And Harvard, as I said, have finally found their footing. They're starting to play really good baseball. They've been pretty good over the last few years. Have given Northeastern some good games over the last few years. Northeastern and Harvard did meet in the consolation game last year when Northeastern did beat them in that game. But, I mean, this is a different game this year. Harvard is in the finals now, so the consolation game, obviously, this means much more than that game did last year. But I only have seen Harvard play once over the last few years. So I'm really basing what I know of that team based off what I saw them play, you know, how they played against Northeastern last year. But 
Here's another update in that game. It is now 3-3 three three in the top of the fifth inning. Harvard getting a hit-by-pitch by Jake Berg. Got hit by a pitch, and that did score a run, giving them a 3-3 three three tie now. BC did have a good start to the game. Bottom of the first inning, Patrick Roach. Uh, advanced to second on a wild pitch. Joe Vitrano went to third, and Travis Honeyman scored. Uh, Nick Wang was at the plate during that at bat. BC also got a home run out of Joe Vitrano in the bottom of the third inning. That was giving them a 2-0 lead, and then they also got another home run from Patrick Roach in the third inning as well, a back-to-back home run there between Vitrano and Roach, giving them a 3-0 lead. But at the end of the day, that lead is diminished now. It is the top of the fifth inning. is now 3-3, as I said. So... I'll keep you guys monitored about how that game goes. Overall, if you look at it, BC obviously has a lot more to play for here, which it's at the end of the day is a championship, so both teams want to win. But BC were to lose this game, losing four games in a row would obviously not be the best thing, especially considering they were doing so well. If you lose three games in a row and now lose to Harvard, obviously that would take them down in the rankings a little bit. But they only fell from nine to 11 in the rankings just, you know, with those three losses to Louisville. So we'll see what happens. Louisville's a very good team, as I said, so losing to them isn't the worst thing. And then Harvard is even finding their footing now. So it's not as bad of a loss if you were to lose to Harvard now than if you lost to them at the beginning of the season when they were 1-13. Andrew Roman is on the mound now for BC out of the pen. He did come in this last inning, did walk a batter, and his two batters faced. Does It does look like he did get out of it, though. Let me see here. Uh... He did not get out of it. I apologize there. He did not get out. It's still top of the fifth inning, and Harvard still has bases loaded, actually, with no outs. So 3-3 game, bases loaded, no outs. I will keep you guys posted about what happens there. Uh, now I'm going to move on. I'm going to start talking about the NBA play-in, which the play-in tournament starts now. starts at 7.30, actually. The first game will be between the Miami Heat and the Atlanta Hawks, that game will be at 7.30 at Miami. Miami's a home team. It'll be on TNT. Miami's favorite in this game by five points. I think Miami's going to win this game rather easy. They finally found their footing by the end of the season. Six and four in their last ten games. Played very good basketball. Crisp played the Miami Heat way. Shooting threes, playing good defense. Obviously, Eric Spolster is a great coach. So every single time that you see the Miami Heat in the playoffs, you know what you're going to get out of them. A team that's going to hustle, play good basketball, obviously hit their free throws. And that's one thing I think the Celtics fear is whoever wins this game, whoever wins between the Atlanta Hawks and the Miami Heat tonight, will get the seventh seed in the Eastern Conference and will be playing the Celtics in the first round. I think the Celtics should be rooting for the Atlanta Hawks in this game. I think the Celtics will win against the Hawks or the Heat, but I think if you play the Hawks, you probably win that series in four, maybe five games, and the Hawks could steal a game. If you play the Miami Heat, it could go six or seven games just because of what you can get out of Jimmy Butler on a nightly basis. I mean, Jimmy Butler turns it up. In the playoffs every single year. If you look at what Jimmy Butler did last year in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Celtics, he was just on another level. On another level against that, against that Celtics team. If you look at Jimmy over his career, 97 playoff games, averaging 20.6 rebounds and 4 assists. And that doesn't even show. I mean, you can look at a box score, obviously, and see what he averages per game. You can see last year in the Eastern Conference Finals how good he was. I'll give you stats now. Last year in the Eastern Conference Finals, 26 points a game, 25.6 points per game. So just about 26 a game. Off of 7 rebounds, 3.4 assists, 2 steals, 0.7 blocks, just 1.1 turnovers per game last year in the Eastern Conference Finals. If you compare that to Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, they were turnover machines last year in the playoffs. Which I know a lot of people that listen to this are Celtics fans, and I'm not trying to you know roast Jalen Brown or Jason Tatum. But considering how much 
you know, how many times those two players touched the ball and how often they turned the ball over last year in the, in the NBA Finals versus the Warriors. And you look at a guy like Jimmy Butler who only turned the ball over at 1.1 turnovers per game last year in the playoffs and the Eastern Conference Finals. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty impressive. Jimmy, as I said, 25.6 points per game, 7 rebounds, 3.4 assists, 2 steals of 88.9% shooting from the free throw line, 47.7% from the floor, 29.2% from three. You're not going to really get too many big three-point shooting nights from Jimmy Butler. He's not really the best shooter, but he doesn't really need to be the best shooter, especially considering with all he can do on the floor on a nightly basis. He can give you everything on the defensive end. He can give you 47, 48 minutes if that's what you need out of him. And that's what you saw last year in Game 6 in the Eastern Conference Finals. The Celtics were up 3-2 three, three to two in that series. The Celtics were the home team looking to put the uh, heat away and go face the Warriors in the NBA Finals. And Jimmy Butler played 45 minutes and 57 seconds of action. 47 points, had 8 assists, 9 rebounds, adding in 3 offensive rebounds of those 9 rebounds. Adding in also a steal, a block, just one turnover, 11-11 from the free throw line, 4 of 8 from 3, 16 of 29 from the floor, 55.2% field goal percentage, leading the Miami Heat to an 8-point win over the Celtics to force the Game 7. And if you look at Game 7, he gave you everything he had yet again, 48 minutes of action, 35 uh, points, adding in no, uh, or just one turnover, I was going to say no turnovers, just one turnover, one stale, one assist, 9 rebounds, adding in 8 of 11 from the free throw line, 1 of 4 from 3, 13 of 24 from the floor. Last year in the Eastern Conference Finals, averaged 36.4 minutes of action per game. So that's one team I don't think the Celtics want to face. I think the Celtics want to make sure the Miami Heat are not the team they face. I think the Celtics have nothing that they can do tonight in this game. It's between the Heat and the Hawks. So whoever wins that game obviously plays the Celtics. The Celtics really can't do anything. It's not like they play defense to see who they were to play. But I think the Celtics should be rooting for the Hawks to win that, this series since I think it would be a little bit easier of a matchup. The Celtics probably win that series in four or five games, I said, and get a little bit more rest before going on in the Eastern Conference playoff run. But if you look at the play the Heat, it probably goes six games. Probably at least six games considering what you can get out of Jimmy Butler on a nightly basis. I think Jimmy Butler is the most valuable player in the NBA in the playoffs. I think Steph Curry's right up there. I think Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James. You can name a ton of guys that are in that mix of guys that if you could draft a guy in the NBA playoffs of guys that are you know in the playoffs right now or in the playing tournament, Jimmy Butler's at the top of my list for sure. I know Jimmy Embiid would be in there as well. Giannis, as I said, LeBron. But if you look at what Jimmy Butler gives you on a nightly basis and Jimmy Butler plays my style of basketball does not take a second off, gives you every single second he has, every bit of energy, every breath, every drop of sweat, every teardrop, every drop of blood. Jimmy Butler gives you everything he has, every single playoff series. He plays my exact style of basketball that I love in a player. I'm drafting Jimmy Butler first overall. Might sound crazy. That's just because he plays my style of basketball. If I'm going otherwise, I'm basing it off of other things other than you know what I'm a fan of. And obviously Jimmy Butler fits my criteria of a player I'm a fan of. I would say, obviously, Giannis Antetokounmpo and probably Steph Curry are right in there. I'm sure some people would have Jason Tatum in there as well. There's a couple other pieces in there. Nikola Jokic would be in some people's uh, draft picks there. John Morant. There'd be a good amount of players in there. But for me, when I look at Jimmy Butler, he just embodies everything I want out of a player and out of a leader. So Jimmy Butler would be my pick if I'm starting a team right now in the playoffs. Okay, so in that game, Miami Heat, Atlanta Hawks. Hawks coming in 5-5 five and five in their last 10 games, losing their last two games. The last game of the year, they didn't really play many guys against the Celtics. It was really all backups. The Celtics end up winning that game 120-114. to Got a great effort out of Peyton Pritchett and Sam Hauser. 
Payne Pritchard actually triple triple double in that game. 30 points, 14 rebounds, 11 assists. Was 9 of 16 from the three-point line. Sam Hauser, 26 points, 5 rebounds, 6 assists, a block, a steal. Also adding in 8 of 14 shooting from the three-point line. One thing with Pritchard in that game, he did have the ball a ton, considering there really weren't too many playmakers out there for the Celtics. He did have seven turnovers, but that's just was what's going to happen if you have the ball that many possessions. Without Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, and Marcus Smart out there, you're going to have the ball a lot more than you would on a given night. So a lot of possessions there for Hauser and in, in, in Pritchard. You get them hot for the playoffs, and I'm sure they're going to be getting minutes off the bench in the playoffs. So the Celtics obviously needed that. They need some guys to come off the bench and make plays. If you look at what the Celtics had last year in the NBA Finals, you really didn't get much production out of the bench last year in the NBA Finals. Grant Williams was struggling. Peyton Pritchard was struggling. Derek White was struggling. Al Horford even had some cold games. You weren't really having too many great games from your role players. And obviously now, when they're finding their footing and they're getting a lot of shots like Sam Hauser and Peyton Pritchard did, that's what you want if you're a Celtics fan. You want to see those guys getting hot going into the playoffs. You'll probably start running a 7-8, maybe 9-man rotation going into the playoffs. And who knows how many minutes Hauser and Pritchard are going to have there. But in those minutes, you obviously want them taking threes if they're open, considering they can both get hot from three. So that Heat-Hawks game, I get the Hawks losing this game. I, I mean, the Heat a five-point favorite, so it's not really a hot take here, but I think the Heat should win this game rather easy, and if they were not to win this game, I think they'll still be in the playoffs, whether they play the Celtics and they win this game tonight and get the seventh seed, or they were to lose this game and then have to win the next game, which would be between the winner of the Bulls-Raptors game to determine who would be the eighth seed in the Eastern Conference. I think the Heat will be in the playoffs no matter what. I think they will be a tough out. I think they'll stay at least a game or two from whoever they play, whether it's the Celtics or the Milwaukee Bucks. I think if you look at this game tonight, I'm going to go the Hawks losing this game by seven or eight points. I think the Heat should cover that spread by five points. I think they'll win that one. As for the other playing game, this is an interesting one. The Lakers versus the Timberwolves. The Lakers coming in have finally found their footing, and that's another team just like Miami Heat, finding their footing at the right time. The Lakers winning eight of their last 10 games, eight and two in their last 10, 43 and 39, considering how poor they were at the beginning of the season, and they were 3-11 and at one point to be in the year, I believe, if I remember right. To be 43-39 and have a chance at making the playoffs, which they should win tonight's game. If not, should win the next play-in game. That game will be between the Thunder and the Pelicans to determine who would be the eighth seed. To be a playoff team, considering how poor they were playing at the beginning of the season, that's pretty impressive. And obviously, LeBron James gave you everything he had Considering it's year 20, LeBron obviously wants to make another run. Probably has about a year or two, maybe three years left tops to play at the level he's playing at now. Maybe two years left at the year he's at the level he's playing at in year 20. LeBron obviously sees some urgency. He wants to make plays. So as for this Timberwolves-Lakers game, though, this is a very interesting game. The Jazz, or excuse me, the Jazz did trade Rudy Gobert to the Timberwolves, but I was just going to say the Jazz. But the Timberwolves obviously made a big move in the offseason. Getting Rudy Gobert, trading five draft picks, four first-round picks with a pick swap. Walker Kessler, Leandro Palmero, Jared Vanderbilt. And they also had another piece in that deal. Uh, let me think of it really quick. Jared Vanderbilt, they had another piece that went to the Lakers in that deal. Uh, and it was Malik Beasley. All those guys going from Minnesota to the Utah Jazz to land Rudy Gobert in Minnesota. I thought it would be a great duo between Rudy Gobert and Kyle Anthony Towns, other Kyle Anthony Towns struggled in the paint defensively. You add a shot-blocking center like Rudy Gobert, who has a great paint presence, and also can make some plays in the offensive end since he shoots you know, five to six feet out from the rim just about every single shot he takes. I thought it'd be a great add to that Timberwolves lineup. 
and even if it hasn't really worked out yet, he did sign an extension, so he'll be there for a while. So even if it didn't work out year one, it could work out year two. But I don't think the offensive production, the defensive production, speaks louder about his first year in Minnesota. What you go to the floor statistically, I don't think really speaks to how Rudy Gobert performed this year for the Minnesota Timberwolves. What I think speaks loudly, and more loudly I should say, is his presence as a leader. And lack thereof, I should say. If you look at that game Sunday, the Timberwolves playing the New Orleans Pelicans. The Timberwolves are playing the New Orleans Pelicans. In a game where Minnesota had to win this game, there's a lot on the line this past Sunday in the playoffs. In the Western Conference where the Clippers win, they play the five, they're the five seed, they play the four seed in the Phoenix Suns. If the Clippers lose and then the Pelicans win and they beat the Timberwolves and the Warriors win, the Pelicans would get the six seed, the Warriors would get the five seed, the Warriors would play the Suns, the Pelicans would play the Kings, and then the Clippers would be in the playing game as the seven. There was a lot on the line in this game. And the Timberwolves knew they were going to be a playing team no matter what. But whether they want to be the... 8th, ninth seed, whatever it may be. I'm not really sure how far they could have really moved up here. I'm going to check the seedings here really quick. I'm not sure if they could have really moved up too much. Oh, they could have actually. Timberwolves actually could have been potentially the 7th seed. So there was still something on the line. They had to at least win that game to be the 8th seed rather than being the ninth seed. If they lost that game to the Pelicans, they would have fell to the ninth seed. So there was still actually a lot on the line for the Timberwolves in that game, Right? And they were actually following themselves down in that game early. They were down 55 to 37 or 55 to 47 at halftime. And they got outscored 30 to 18 in the first quarter by the Pelicans. There was a lot on the line in that game. They wanted to win this game, obviously, to try to get the eight seed, which they ended up doing. But if you look at one point in that game, when Rudy Gobert is on the sidelines during a timeout, this is why I said his stats on the floor don't speak as loud as what I saw on Sunday on the bench. And this doesn't embody what I like out of a player, what I like out of a leader. I've talked a lot about players I like. I love Paul George because of his hustle. Jimmy Butler is another guy. I love his hustle. Gives you every single play. Every play gives you everything he's got. Just like Marcus Smart. Marcus Smart, the number one hustler in the NBA. He's going to give you every single thing he has in his body, every single possession. Doesn't matter if he's diving on the floor, diving in the stands, hitting his head off the ground, trying to get a loose ball, diving you know, in the passing lanes to deflect passes. Marcus Smart will give you everything he's got, just like Jimmy Butler, just like Paul George, for instance. A lot of those Clippers guys, that's why I love the Clippers. Terrence Mann will give you everything he's got, every single possession. But if you look at what Rudy Gobert did on Sunday in the sidelines, during a timeout, he's shown visibly having an argument with his own teammate, forward Kyle Anderson for the Timberwolves. They're going at it back and forth. They exchange words one or two times back and forth. And then Rudy Gobert throws a punch. And then all the Timberwolves teammates, everybody jumps in, rips them both away. Gobert ends up getting sent to the tunnel, through the locker room, gets sent home, has to leave the arena. He's actually suspended for tonight's game against the Lakers. He will not be playing for the Timberwolves in tonight's game. He could return in the next playing game if they were to lose tonight or if they were to win. He will return and be there for their game against the Grizzlies in game one. Since they would earn the seventh seed if they win tonight, they'd play the Grizzlies, who's the two seed in the West. Gets in their fight, gets sent home. And then after the game, everything comes out of what was said. So Rudy Gobert said to Kyle Anderson, why don't you go grab a rebound? And Kyle Anderson said to him, why don't you go block some shots? So they get into it back and forth. They're blaming each other. Obviously, they were, there was some tense 
situations obviously happening in that game. They wanted to win. Obviously, there's going to be a heat of a moment situation for every single team where teammates are going to get on each other's backs. That just happens. You're going to have an argument with a teammate. You're not going to see eye to eye. The problem is when it gets physical and it gets to get to the point where they let it get to. That's where it's a problem. When it's not just verbal and you're just trying to help each other out and you both want to win. When it gets to actually be, to an extent, where there's actually problems between you guys and it's not just X's and O's and trying to win the game. Where there's actually tension between you guys and you guys don't like each other's, don't like each other's teammates. And that's what I got from it. When you're saying to each other, don't you know, blame me for the reason we're not winning the game. Why don't you go grab a rebound and why don't you go block some shots? There's a lot there. There's a lot there, obviously, that shows those guys didn't get along. And maybe it's just one argument. Maybe they're, they're still friends and maybe they patch things up. But to throw a punch at a teammate there when you know there's cameras looking, you know your teammates are looking, you know it's not a good look for the rest of the guys on the team, some of the young guys in the Minnesota Timberwolves, obviously Anthony Edwards is a rising star on that team, third-year player for the Timberwolves. It's not a good look throwing a punch in front of him. It's not. Especially when Anthony Edwards is the face of the franchise. You're not giving him a good look when you're throwing a punch. It doesn't give a good look to a stop player like Anthony Edwards, who's had a great year this year, 79 starts for the Timberwolves, 24.6 points per game. He's gone up each year in points per game, 19, 21 to 24 now. So 19 this first year as a rookie, 21 his second year, and then 25 this past year. But Gobert throwing a punch was not a good look for the team, not a good look for the coach, not a good look for the team, the franchise overall. Because it shows this tension, and obviously, as I said, you're going to get on each other at some points. But when you throw in a punch, is a little bit more than just a slight argument. There's some brokenness in that, locker, in that locker room. So Mike Conley says after the game that Gobert ends up sending an apologetic text message in a group chat to the whole team. And then Mike Conley noted that we'll speak about it and move on. We're grown men. We're going to move on from this. And here's one thing that I think could be a positive from the situation, also a negative. When this all happened... The Wolves were down 12 when Gobert had this fight on the sidelines. Or at one point, they were down 12 before this timeout. They get to the sidelines. Gobert has that fight with Kyle Anderson, gets sent home. The Timberwolves end up winning that game by five points. Maybe it was a spark that this Minnesota team needed. That's why I said it could be a positive. But it's also a negative that the team is playing better without Rudy Gobert out there. Considering all they gave up and how good of a player Gobert's been. He's been an all-NBA player just about every single year of his career in the NBA. Defensive player of the year candidate every single year he laces up. Every single year he laces up his shoes, he's going to be defensive player of the year candidate because of how good he is on the paint defensively. But they play better without him. And that's not a good look for Minnesota. That's not a good look for Rudy Gobert. So we'll see how they play tonight without him. Another bad look for this Timberwolves team. That's why I said there's more brokenness in this locker room. Jaden McDaniels, God for this team, was going down the locker room tunnel, was upset with something. Ends up punching the wall on his way to the locker room. Breaks his hand. He's only a young player, third year in the NBA. He's been starting all year for them, 79 out of 79 games. 12.1 points per game, shooting 39.8% from three. Averaging four rebounds, two assists, and a steal per game, just about. That's a big loss considering he just broke his hand. He's out for the rest of the playoffs. So they're without Rudy Gobert tonight. They're without Jaden McDaniels tonight. And obviously Kyle Anderson, he, I think he will be playing, but... Considering that brokenness in that Minnesota locker room, I would have taken the Lakers anyways because I would root for LeBron James always since I always root for greatness. 
But I don't think you could really pick that Minnesota Timberwolves team tonight considering all they're missing without Rudy Gobert and without Jaden McDaniels. That's two starters they're without. And it's going to be a lot on the line here for Anthony Edmonds and Conley Towns to make up for the rest of those losses. So we'll see what happens in that game tonight. I got the Lakers winning that one. Then in the other play-in games, I did not mean for this to go 25 minutes about the play-in games. I was really trying to make it a 15-minute segment here about the play-in games and then jump into my NFL mock draft and then have Paul from Southie jump on as well, which if anybody else would want to jump in tonight, completely free schedule. I have Paul from Southie coming on at the end, but if anybody wants to call in after that or before that, give me a text. You guys have my number. If not, 617-596-3150. Give me a text and we can talk uh, later on at the end of the episode. I'm going to have more people come on, as I said, hopefully by the end of the year. I probably have five or six episodes left on Tuesday nights. I think it's six episodes left, including tonight. So five more after tonight on Tuesday nights. And I have still a lot of guests I want to get on. So I'm probably going to go to two to two day you know, weeks where I did you know Tuesday, Wednesday nights, like I did last semester at one point, where I was supposed to have just one show a week. I did a couple of shows per week just because there was a lot of content to talk about. I could do that potentially to get more people on the show since I have a ton of guests that have been meeting to get on over the past year that just have not been able to get to. So I will get there at some point. But in the other playing game, as I said, do not mean to talk about the playing games this much. The Bulls will be facing the Raptors. They'll be traveling to Toronto. The Bulls are 6-4 and four in their last 10 games, as are the Toronto Raptors. Both are 6-4 and four in their last 10 games. I think the Bulls, they have a lot of firepower in their first part of their lineup. DeMar DeRozan, Zach Levine, Nikola Vucevic, Patrick Williams, Patrick Beverly. Two great pieces there defensively, Williams and Beverly. And then you obviously get two great scorers and two, two good way, two two-way players in DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine. Obviously, Vucevic is a great player as well in the paint. And then also off the bench, you have Alex Caruso, who did start some games as well. Played in 67 games, he started 36. And Kobe White as well off the bench. Andre Drummond, just another guy to name. The Bulls have a lot of firepower in that start of their lineup. As I said, that top part of the lineup is very top-heavy with Tamar DeRozan, Zach Levine, and Nikola Vucevic. Then if you look at the Raptors, which they have Pascal Siakam, Frank Van Vliet, OG Ananobi, Scotty Bonds, Gary Trent Jr., Jakob Perto, they traded for from the San Antonio Spurs. They had him at one point, traded him to the Spurs in that Kawhi Leonard trade, did not want to punt ways with him. Obviously, they traded Tamar DeRozan that deal. They did not want to punt ways with him, but... Ultimately, that's what they had to do in order to land Kawhi Leonard. Obviously, it wins them an NBA championship, wins them the finals. They get Kawhi Leonard and Norman Powell. Both those guys are now LA Clippers. I'm a fan of both of those guys now that they're Clippers. I like both of them before. Now, obviously, with them being Clippers, I'm super fans of both of those guys. But they have a good young core, that Toronto Raptors team, Scotty Bonds, OG Ananobi, two guys that potentially teams wanted at the NBA trade deadline this year. But the Raptors were not going to pot ways with both of those guys. And the Raptors were not... In a position really to go win now mode, they weren't going to really acquire too many big pieces. That's why Perto was really the only guy they got at the trade deadline. And they weren't really in too bad a position where they should rip it up for the entire future. And that's why you saw Bonds and Ananobi stay put. I'm sure Bonds didn't really listen to too many offers on since he's younger than Ananobi. Ananobi, I'm sure there were some teams that wanted him, including the Miami Heat. I think even the LA Clippers reached out at one point. They end up keeping those guys. I think this game is probably going to be the best game of the play-in tournament. Bulls Raptors, I think it's going to be a very close one. I like the Bulls to win this one in a very close game. The reason why I'm rooting for the Bulls in this one, Zach Levine. I'm a big DeMar DeRozan fan. DeMar DeRozan's great. My sister loves Zach Levine, so I'd root for the Bulls anyways for that sake. And I like the Bulls back in the Jimmy Butler days. Obviously, they don't have Jimmy Butler anymore, but I like them back then, so I always kind of root for them lightly, even though I'm not really a fan of the team. But I do like some players they've had on their team in the past, including Jimmy Butler. 
And now if you look at it, they still have some good young pieces on that team, considering Patrick Williams was the first-round pick a couple years ago, and they have some good, very good stars, all-star players in Zach Levine and DeMar DeRozan. Then you look at the other side, as I said, Pascal Siakam, Fred Van Vliet, OG Anobi, Scotty Bonds. It's going to be a very good game. The line right now is the Toronto Raptors favored by five points. I think the Bulls are going to be very close this one. I think it's going to come down to the wire. I would favor, I guess, the Raptors in this game, even though I'm rooting for the Bulls. But I would not be surprised if the Bulls are hot out. And whether they lose this game or not, I they'll, they'll be guaranteed another game since this is the seven versus eight teams playing each other for the seventh seed. I think it's going to be a very close game. Or no, excuse me. This is actually the seven. This is the nine versus ten teams. Excuse me. I, I apologize. The seven versus eight game is tonight. The Hawks versus the Heat, which is tipping off just about now in Miami on TNT. This is the nine versus ten teams here. The Bulls versus Raptors to determine who will play the loser of the Hawks Heat game to determine who's the eight seed and who will be playing the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round. I think it's going to be a very close game. I'm going to favor the Raptors in this one, a very close one, maybe by a point or two, but I think the Bulls will be in this one very close. Then in the other game, in the 9 verse 10, we have the Oklahoma City Thunder playing the New Orleans Pelicans tomorrow night at 9.30. As for the Bulls-Raptors game, the game is tomorrow night at 7 p.m. in Toronto. The Thunder vs. Pelicans game is tomorrow night at 9.30 in New Orleans. The Pelicans surprised some people this year, 42-40 and 40 on the year. So the Pelicans were able to do a lot this past year. And I apologize, I was taking a quick water break. But they were able to do a lot this past year with Zion Williamson being out for the majority of the season. Zion, I think, might have only played a handful of games. He played 29 games this year, averaging a great, which is a great score, 26 points per game, 4.6 assists, 7.7 rebounds per game. He's a great player overall, Zion, but you really can't find him on a nightly basis, staying healthy. They were to play great without him. CJ McCollum stepped up. Brandon Ingram stepped up, as well as some other guys on their bench. As for the Oklahoma City Thunder, no one saw the Oklahoma City Thunder in this position, especially considering they drafted Chet Holmgren early in the draft last year in the first round. Chet Holmgren, I think, believe, was the first overall pick by them. And it might have been third overall selection. He was the second overall selection. I apologize. Their second overall selection to the Oklahoma City Thunder this past year. And he missed the entire season with a foot injury. Entire season. And you know where the Thunder are right now? 40-42. and 42, Currently in a play-in game. And they're years ahead of schedule. Years ahead of schedule. I do think the Pelicans win this game, though. Even though Shea Gilgis-Alexander had a great year. SGA has been great. Former Kentucky Wildcat. I rooted for him when he's a Kentucky Wildcat. He's been great this year. 31.4 points per game. 5.5 assists. 4.8 rebounds. Shooting 34.5% from three. 90.5% from free throw line. Then you've got Josh Giddy, Lou Dort. Uh, Jalen Williams, a lot of young pieces that are very good pieces on that team. As I said, Chet Holmgren didn't even register a game this year for them, so they're adding him and then also be adding more guys in the draft. I mean, they have more draft picks than the entire NBA, rest of the NBA field combined over the next few years. Uh, they do have a nice young core. I do think they will fall in this game to the Pelicans. The Pelicans currently are favored in this game by 5.5 points. I think the Pelicans win this one by 7 or 8. But the Thunder are a scrappy team. They play the Clippers very hard in the games that the Clippers were fully healthy. So I'm sure it'll be a scrappy game. I do like the Pelicans to win this one. So anyways, that's my breakdown of the play-in games. I apologize there for 30-minute breakdown of it. Now I'm going to give you guys another update here of the BC Harvard Beanpot final game taking place here in uh, Brighton, Massachusetts. Actually, BC is the home team for this game. BC is currently down 4-3 to three now in the bottom of the sixth inning with a runner on first base and one out. Peter Burns just walked. And it is Travis Honeyman up in the plate. He is 0-1 on the day with a walk and a run scored. As for Harvard, 
They've scored four straight unanswered runs. Very impressive run for them. It was a 3-0 game for BC after Patrick Roach and Joe Vitrano went back-to-back for home runs in the third inning, the bottom of the third. Top of the fifth inning, though, was the inning for the Harvard offense, scoring five or four runs off of, uh, it was a double, a hit-by-pitch, a walk. They basically loaded multiple times. So they're finding ways to score runs, Harvard, whether it be obviously getting lucky by BC loading the bases and hitting guys by pitches, or they're doubling also, you know, they, they have some good plate discipline. They're walking uh, as well. So credit to them, four-run fifth inning. They put themselves in the lead, 4-3 to three here in the bottom of the sixth inning. I will keep you guys updated about what happens the rest of the way. Harvard's been getting a lot of production out of Matt uh, Giberti. He is their left field, the number eight hitter in the lineup. He's two of three on the day as of BC. Joe Vitrano's one for one with the home run, also got a base with a walk. He's been having a good day as well. But as a BC on the mound, they have been struggling, obviously, putting things together over the last four days. Three games against Louisville, putting it all together offensively and defensively at the same time. And then, obviously, in today's game, the pitching wasn't bad. Eric Schroeder started the game for BC, he's a reliever for them. Came in, got two innings of work, three strikeouts giving up just one hit and no runs, walking no batters. Charlie Kuhn came in, a left-handed pitcher for the Eagles. He's a junior for the Eagles. Uh, Bullpen, two innings pitch, giving up one hit, three strikeouts, no walks, and just one hit allowed, no runs. And then Matthew Noonan came in and got lit up, giving up four runs off of three hits, not recording one out. Did have a hit batsman as well. Uh, I believe it was a hit batsman, did he? Yes, it looked like he did have a hit batsman. Hit batsman. Andrew Roman came in, two innings of work, giving up one hit, three strikeouts to two walks. So they're, try- they're, finding it hard- they're finding it hard to put both the pitching and the hitting together at the same time, which they've been able to do just about all season, just the last three days. They're up eight to nothing against Louisville, and then they give up eight runs straight on that Saturday, on that Friday game, that second game of the Louisville series. And you see today... They're up three to nothing, and then give up four runs in a blink, and find themselves down four to three. But instead of bottom of the sixth, sixth inning, they do have runners at first and second with no outs for Joe Vitrano, who is one of one on the day with two walks, uh, and also adding in a two sixty seven batting average on the year with a five forty three slugging percentage. So big opportunity here for the Eagles. As for Northeastern baseball, they did get a win today in the consolation game over the UMass Minutemen. They traveled to UMass today, throwing a little bit of a four game. Uh, Away series, a four-game road trip, I should say. Uh, they did get a win today. Did get a cycle, actually, as well, out of Kim Maldonado, who has been great for them. He's a freshman, six foot three, one ninety-five foot freshman, uh, one ninety-five pound freshman. He's been great for them this year. He actually had a cycle today, which is very impressive. He was five of six or four of six in today's game. Five of six, I apologize. Four of six was Tyler McGregor. Three RBIs for McGregor, also adding in a home run. He's been great on the Apollo-wise. I believe that was his 10th home run on the season for the Huskies. Let me get that right really quick. He had his 10th home run of the season today for the Huskies. Also adding in four RBIs, or three RBIs, and four runs scored in today's game. As for the Huskies in today's game, Kim Aldonado was the... Star of the show, five of six, three runs scored with six RBIs. Mike Sirota was one of five with two runs scored, also adding in a walk. Sirota did what he always does, gets on base, did get on base with a hit batsman. And then also yesterday, Sirota started, or two days ago, I should say, Sirota really started to find his footing. He was hurt at one point, has really found his footing, though, over the last few games. On Sunday against Delaware, he was two for four at the plate, four RBIs with a grand slam also adding it a walk, so he's 3 of 5 in his plate appearances, getting on base. 
Got his batting average up to 324 on Sundays, now at 318 on the year. But Sirota will be a first round pick in the 2024 MLB draft. Great to see him doing big things for the Huskies. So we'll see what happens uh, the rest of the way for the Huskies. They did get a big win today. As I said, it was a consolation game, so it wasn't really as meaningful a game as the Huskies obviously wanted to be in. Obviously, the Huskies wanted to be playing against BC, the two top teams out of the four teams in the Beanpot tournament in this year's tournament. But Northeastern obviously found themselves in a hole last week against Harvard. Lost, losing that game 4-3. Northeast was up 2-0, but ended up giving up two runs in the top of the ninth inning, giving up a 3-2 lead, losing 4-3 in that game. Northeastern on the year is 26-6 and, and will be facing Stony Brook, a CAA, a CAA new opponent in the CAA division. They just added them to the conference this past year. Stony Brook will be home for three games against the Huskies Friday, Saturday, and Sunday before Northeastern will be traveling to UConn next Tuesday to face the UConn Huskies. So it's a five-game road trip for the Huskies before they'll be facing Hofstra next weekend, April 21st, the 22nd, and the 23rd at home for three-game series. So that'll be exciting there for the Huskies. Now I'm going to jump over to my NFL mock draft. I was originally going to give you a whole first-round mock. I think I'm going to save probably some of it. I think I'm going to do probably maybe a five- to ten-pick first-round mock right now, and then I'll probably give the rest of it tomorrow. And then I'll have Paul from Southie call in. We'll talk probably Red Sox, maybe talk some Zay Flowers, BC wide receiver in this year's draft. Will be a first-round pick, if not a first-round pick, early second, I think, as – the draft reports are saying there's a lot of buzz about him being a first-round pick in this year's draft. Considering his playmaking ability, it's hard to believe that he wouldn't be a first-round pick in this year's draft. It would be hard not to believe he's a first-round pick in this year's draft. He's going to be a first-round pick considering his speed and playmaking ability. So I'll talk about him probably with Paul from Southie, but I'm going to give you my first five picks of this year's draft. Not really too many surprises here, and then I'll probably give the rest of the 20 to 25, 30 picks in a mock draft. Full rundown tomorrow. I'll probably give the picks and analysis behind my top five picks now. And then tomorrow, I'll probably give one through five picks. Just list them. And then I'll probably give picks six through 31 in a whole rundown tomorrow in an episode uh, of a podcast upload to Spotify. So we'll see what happens there. Uh, but I will give you a five-pick mock draft to start. Just get things going. It's my first mock draft. I'll probably give one next week. The 18th and then the 25th would just be two days before that Thursday, which would be the 27th, the first round of the NFL uh, draft will be the 27th on that Thursday night, 8 o'clock. So my last two episodes before then will be the 18th and the 25th. I'll give an updated mock draft in each of those nights and maybe even give an updated mock draft along the way on Spotify. So starting off with the first overall pick is the Carolina Panthers, who had a 7-10 record this past year. They did trade up in the draft. They had the 7th overall pick, and then they ended up trading up with the, or was the, uh, excuse me, they had the ninth pick. They had the ninth pick, and they ended up trading up with the Chicago Bears to land the first overall pick. They gave up the ninth overall pick in this year's draft, a second-round pick in this year's draft. They gave up their first-round pick in the 2024 draft, a 2025 second-round pick, and also added in their star receiver, wide receiver DJ Moore. So the Bears give up just the first overall pick and get back the ninth pick in this year's draft, a second-round pick in this year's draft, adding in the Carolina Panthers' first pick in the 2024 draft, their second-round pick in the 2025 draft, and then also adding in wide receiver DJ Moore, now giving Justin Fields another weapon on that offense. He was desperately needing another wide receiver, and they end up adding that in in this dra- uh, in this trade before the draft with the Carolina Panthers. So if you look at what the Panthers need, 
They number one needs quarterback. You don't trade up to, to the first overall pick to not take a quarterback. So this really isn't a hot take that they're going to take a quarterback here. Maybe who they're going to take a quarterback could be a potential hot take, even though it's looking like it would be C.J. Stroud. That's who I have them taking here with the first overall pick. I said in the offseason, maybe December or January, I was doing a whole college football playoff preview. I think I mentioned C.J. Stroud and Ohio State since they were in it. And I think I said C.J. Stroud's the best quarterback in this draft among quarterbacks that are eligible for this year's draft. I think Stroud was the best one. I think if you look at it, I think he's the most NFL-ready. I don't think many people can argue his arm talent. He's a great arm, obviously a great playmaker as well. And if you look at what he did this past year for the Ohio State Buckeyes, he was just electric. His last two years as the quarterback for the Ohio State offense, which it's not as it's not like you're being the quarterback of a high school team that doesn't have great receivers and you're playing against Division I opponents in Division I high school. It's not like that. You're throwing to... Marvin Harrison Jr. and Jackson Smith and Jigba and Garrett Wilson and Jameson Williams, just to name a few. Or Jameson Williams actually transferred uh, to Alabama. So not Jameson Williams. He was actually originally with Ohio State, but he ended up transferring to Alabama. But you're throwing two great receivers, right? Among those being Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson. So you're throwing to a lot of great receivers. Don't get me wrong. But if you look at his film, I mean, he's he's just great with his ball placement. Elite playmaker. He can just throw into double coverage and not really have too much care. Obviously, a lot of receivers are obviously open a lot of the time, considering a lot of receivers are big home run threat guys. But the Panthers are looking for a quarterback of their future, and that's what they're going to get out of C.J. Stroud. I know the Ohio State quarterback history has not been great. The track record of quarterbacks going into the NFL draft from Ohio State has not been great. Just name a few guys. Obviously, Dwayne Haskins didn't really work out with the Washington Redskins at the time taking him. God bless Dwayne Haskins. I was a big fan of him coming out of the draft. My thoughts of prison with his family, obviously, was a crazy situation just about a year ago now. He did lose his life. So my apologies and my condolences with his family. Obviously, such a great quarterback in college. I was obviously a big fan of him coming out of the draft. So he didn't work out in the NFL I think he still could have potentially been a good NFL quarterback. He was with the Pittsburgh Steelers and is backing up Big Ben Roethlisberger at the time uh, and could have really got great analysis and insight behind a guy like Ben Roethlisberger and obviously could have learned a lot from Big Ben, which he got just an offseason just about before he ended up losing his life. Uh, So God bless him, as I said. So that's one guy to name. A couple other guys to name that just have not worked out in the NFL, Cadeo Jones, JT Barrett, uh, and there's another receiver at the top of my head, and I'm trying to remember, just can't get it here. Uh, I'm trying to think. There's another receiver at the top of my head here that was an Ohio State quarterback that did not translate to the NFL. Give me one second. Terrell Pryor. There it is. Terrell Pryor was the other quarterback that did not work out in the NFL. I think CJ Straw becomes the first one that works out. I think he's the most NFL-ready. Good mobility in the pocket. He's not really going to run. He's not really Lamar Jackson-esque type quarterback. He's not going to really juke too many guys. But he's got good mobility in the pocket. Can step up. Has a big arm. Can make big throws. 41 touchdowns and 6 picks this past year for the Ohio State Buckeyes. Also as a, as a sophomore at the time in 2021, 44 touchdowns to 6 picks in 2021, which is very impressive. So very good quarterback there. I think if you look at what the Panthers have done over the past few years, they really have been trying to find their quarterback of the future. Obviously Cam Newton. Didn't work out at the end of his career there in Carolina. They get Sam Donald in a trade. That didn't really work out for them. He ends up moving on. Now he's a San Francisco 49er, which I really like that move for him. I think if you're looking at that quarterback room in San Francisco, Sam Donald, Brock Purdy, Trey Lance, 
I like Sam Donner the most out of all those guys. I know Trey Lance, when he's healthy, probably gets probably gets the best opportunity to start there considering he was the third overall pick and they trade up a ton to move up in the draft to get him in 2021. But I do like what I see out of Sam Donald in that offense. Obviously, Sam Donald's not been great in the NFL. Obviously, struggled with the Jets and struggled with the Panthers. But I like what is around him. I know I said I like what I see out of him. He hasn't been in that system yet considering he just was signed you know, this past offseason just about a month or so ago now with the 49ers. But... They have weapons. Debo Samuel, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, Brandon Ayuk. And that's just to name a few. They have even more weapons in that backfield. Elijah Mitchell's another guy. I know I got a little bit off topic there when I was talking about Carolina Pins quarterback didn't work out. So my apologies there. So you got Cam Newton, Sam Donald, PJ Walker didn't work out. It was a former XFL quarterback that was pretty good there. They ended up picking him up. He didn't really work out for them. Never really got a big starting role except as a reserve when Donald was out or if Cam Newton uh, got hurt. Then you also add in a guy like Matt Corral they drafted last year. I don't think he's really the quarterback of the future for them. And then you got Bacon Mayfield, who they had as well. They traded for him. Uh, or I, think, I believe they signed him. Or was it a trade? Let me see. I'm going to make sure here. Bacon Mayfield... He was a trade, yes. The Carolina Panthers traded a 2024 conditional pick to the Carolina Panthers for uh, the Cleveland Browns acquired a fourth-round pick conditional in exchange for Baker Mayfield. Then Baker Mayfield obviously ends up not working out there, ends up going to the Los Angeles Rams, and now he finds himself getting another role as a Tampa Bay Bucks quarterback. So we'll see what happens there. But I think the Panthers are going for their quarterback of the future, and that's why I think it'll be C.J. Stroud. The second overall pick is the Houston Texans. 313-1 record last year. Obviously not great. Three wins. But they didn't really have much to work with. Davis Mills was their quarterback. Smart guy out of Stanford was a third-round pick, I believe, in the 2021 NFL Draft. Let me make sure I get that right. Could have been 2022 just to make sure. He was the, a third-round pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. 67th pick overall in the draft. He's not their quarterback for the future. I think they're going to take quarterback Bryce, Bryce Young out of Alabama. One thing with Bryce Young, he is a little bit undersized, just 5'10", but a very good arm, very talented player as well. Obviously, the size comes into question when you're going to take a guy that high in the draft. Obviously, with Kyler Murray being the first overall pick to the Arizona Condos in 2019, that was a big question. Is Kyler Murray's size a problem? He ends up being the first overall pick anyways. I think Bryce Young will still be the second overall pick since arm talent and playmaking ability a lot of the time, does outweigh the size of a quarterback, especially considering if they can get outside the pocket like Bryce Young can and just like a quarterback like Kyler Murray can, even though Kyler Murray hasn't really been too great with the, with the Cardinals over the last few years. I'm going to get to the Cardinals in just a second with the third overall pick. But the second overall pick, I have, as I said, Alabama quarterback Bryce Young going to the Houston Texans. 32 touchdowns to five picks this past year, 64.5% completion percentage. If you look at what he did as a sophomore in 2021, 47 touchdowns to seven picks. Played just three games less this year. Played only 12 games this year at 32 touchdowns and five picks. Last year, though, in 15 games in 2021, 47 touchdowns and seven picks in those 15 games in 2021. If you look what the, what the Houston Texans have, they have a ton of draft capital. They have the second pick, the, the 12th pick, and the 33rd pick. So they have three picks in the top 33 in this year's NFL draft. So they're building well for the future. But one thing that worries me, about this Houston Texans team is that I read a report today, which I think it's just a smokescreen, but I read a report that they may not go quarterback with the second overall pick. But I think they have no option but to go quarterback with the second overall selection here. Obviously, you trade Deshaun Watson to the Cleveland Browns. 
You bring in a guy like Davis Mills in 2021 in the third round. He's not your quarterback for the future. And now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? You're going to just not take a quarterback at, 12, at two and wait for 12 and maybe potentially lose a quarterback that you wanted at two that you didn't want to overdraft. Let's say you wanted to draft a guy like Anthony Richardson. And you think, okay, he might fall to 10-ish. Maybe let's trade up from 12 to 10 and get him. It might not be worth the risk. It might not be worth the risk. Right? I, I was worrying a little bit when I saw that, but I think I, I think it could just be a smokescreen maybe to get teams to try to trade up or just to make teams worry around them. So we'll see what happens there. But I have Bryce Young going second overall to the Houston Texans. With the third overall pick, I have the Arizona Cardinals, who were 14 and, 4 and 13 last year. I have them taking edge rusher Will Anderson out of Alabama. So the second Alabama player taken in a row. I had Bryce Young go to Houston. Now I got Will Anderson and edge rusher going to the Arizona Cardinals. This could be a potential trade-down place here for Arizona. But if they were to keep this pick, I think they're going to go with the athletic and strong pass rusher in Will Anderson. 17 and a half sacks in 2021. Had just 12 sacks in 2022. His tackles for a loss did go down as well from 2021 to 2022. He had 31 tackles for a loss in 2021 with those 17 and a half sacks. Just 12 sacks in 2022. But he's a ridiculous athlete. Has great range on the defensive line. Obviously, if you look at what Alabama's been able to do over the past four or five years, what they've put into the NFL on their defense, their defensive line, their secondary, their linebackers, Alabama can just produce defensive special, uh, you know, special players on defense every single year. Special defensive players, defensive backs, linebackers, edge rushers, cornerbacks, safeties, even wide receivers. If you look at what they've been able to do in the NFL draft over the last few years, putting in guys like Jalen Waldo and Devontae Smith. To attack of lower, another guy, quarterback to the Miami Dolphins. Had a good year last year. Obviously, who knows what his future holds there with Miami, but he will be there at least one more year, it seems like. At least one more year, I should say. Could be, you know, potentially another year or two if they were to add him, uh, you know, in, a, in an extension. But we'll see how long they will stay committed to him. But if you look at what the Arizona Cardinals could do here, I think they could just trade down, or if they're going to stay, I think you'd add a premier pass rusher in Will Anderson who's going to disrupt the quarterback. They need help on that defense. He's going to disrupt the quarterback, make it a living hell for the run game as well. He's a great player overall. overall. I like him to go third overall to Arizona. And now I'm going to give just a couple more picks, and then I'll give you my Patriots pick as well for everybody listening in. And just as a quick update, BC tied the game 4-4. to It is to 4-4 in the bottom of the seventh inning. It is... Bottom of the seventh, BC scored one run in the bottom of the sixth. And I'm giving you an update on the Red Sox game here before I go to the fourth overall selection, which is the Indianapolis Colts. The Red Sox are down three to nothing to the Tampa Bay Rays. Early on, the Red Sox gave up a double to one to Franco in the first inning, and then also gave up a home run to Isaac Paredes, uh, which was a solo shot in the bottom of the fourth. It is three to nothing here, Tampa Bay at Tropicana Field. Uh, so we'll see what happens there in the rest of the game for the Red Sox. I'm going to give you my fourth and fifth overall selections, and I'll Paul from Southie call in for maybe 15 minutes to talk about the Red Sox. Uh, so let me give you my fourth overall pick here. I have the Indianapolis Colts, who were 4-12-1 and this past year, taking quarterback Will Levis from Kentucky. He's moved up a ton of draft boards over the last month or two. He had a good combine, did pretty well in his pro day as well, showed a lot of talent with his arm strength, which I think a lot of guys have moved up a ton in the past few, in the past few NFL drafts, four to five years now. A lot of guys have been moving up a lot, moving up a ton because of their pro day playmaking ability with their arm. Big arms, and they've been moving up. Look at Zach Wilson. Moving up, 
Draft boards from being mid-first round, a 10th overall pick, to being the second overall pick to the New York Jets in 2021 because of his big arm. Another guy, Josh Allen, was not very accurate in college, but you saw a big, big arm in his pro day, and especially in his film, and he said, okay, he's going to be the seventh overall pick to the Buffalo Bills in the 2019 NFL draft. 2018 NFL draft, I apologize. 2018 he was. So that's another guy Will Levis showed. Good arm strength, 19 touchdowns to 10 picks in the 2022 season for the Kentucky Wildcats. Also adding in nine rushing touchdowns in 2021. Does have good speed in the open field, has natural arm strength. Obviously, in today's NFL game, you have to be able to run the ball as a quarterback. At least, if you're not going to be Lamar Jackson, you still have to be able to move in the pocket, move around the pocket, move behind the line of scrimmage and make plays, extend plays as long as you can, especially considering when you go into a team that doesn't have a great offensive line, the Colts... Had a good offensive line a couple years ago with Quinton Nelson declining. That offensive line has not gotten has not gotten any better, and they're just not really improving much. I'm not as high though on Will Levis as most people are. I think, as I said, he does have good arm strength, but I think if you look at what they need, they need a quarterback here, and there's only a couple quarterbacks left besides Will Levis, Anthony Richardson, Hendon Hooker that could be first round selections. I think at this point. As even though I'm not as high on Will Levis as most, it seems like they like him. From what I've read, I have the Colts taking Will Levis with the fourth overall pick. And I think what you look at what the Colts have done over the last few years, since their retirement of Andrew Luck in 2019, it's just been a carousel of quarterbacks for them. Just like the Carolina Panthers. I think the Panthers said, I'm done with not having our quarterback in the future. I'm going to trade up for the first overall pick. And here with the Indianapolis Colts, since the retirement of Andrew Luck, their quarterbacks have been Jacoby Brissett, Brian Hoyer, Philip Rivers for a one-year deal, Carson Wentz for one year, Matt Ryan for one year, and even Nick Foles for a little bit of last season. That's three straight one-year deal quarterbacks. Philip Rivers, Carson Wentz was on an extended deal, but they ended up trading him to Washington with a year or two left of his deal. And then also one year of Matt Ryan before moving on from him. So I think they're looking for their quarterback of the future. And I think they realize, okay, one and done's not going to get this team a Super Bowl. And I think they're going to go with a quarterback here. I think they're going to go with Will Levis. With the fifth overall pick, I have the Seattle Seahawks, who got this pick from the Denver Broncos in the Russell Wilson trade. Seattle last year was getting this pick from the Denver Broncos, who was 5-12. Seattle did make the playoffs last year. So a playoff team getting a fifth overall pick is very impressive. Obviously, you can add a ton of talent to a team when you obviously made the playoffs last year, and you can only add, with the fifth overall pick, you're only adding talent. And here I have the Seattle Seahawks taking defensive lineman Jalen Carter out of Georgia. And one thing with Jalen Carter, he does have off-the-field issues that he's been dealing with this past offseason that could cause him to fall further down draft boards. If there were not to be any situation from him, let's say what happened didn't happen this past offseason, he probably could have been a second or third overall selection. Because of his talent and playmaking ability. But with all that considered, and when you're an NFL GM, you have to take everything off the field in mind. You're going to fall off draft boards. You're going to fall down draft boards or fall off draft boards, worst case scenario. So Jalen Carter, him going fifth overall to the Seattle Seahawks. If you look at what he's been able to do on the field... Three sacks, seven tackles for losses past year with two forced fumbles and three passes defended for the Georgia Bulldogs, who won the national championship for a second year in a row, beating TCU this past year. What you see in Jalen Carter in his film is a very strong and aggressive defensive lineman, premier talent, but obviously his legal situation 
comes with a cost. And I wouldn't blame any GM for saying he's going to fall off draft boards because of what happened in this past offseason, what he's been going through, obviously, legally. So we'll see what happens. I have him going fifth overall to Seattle. They could add a premier pass rusher, obviously, at fifth overall, whether it's a guy like defensive lineman Jamin Carter. They could go a guy like Tyree Jackson, or, or excuse me, Tyree Wilson, uh, edge rusher out of Texas Tech, who I have going ninth overall to Chicago Bears. So I think they're going to add a pass rusher at this spot. They could add a potentially a cornerback as well. But we'll see what happens. They could add an offensive lineman as well. I think there's a ton of ways that Seattle could go here. But I went with Jalen Carter since he's the best talent overall at fifth overall here, even though he does come with a great cost with the off-the-field issues. So now I'm going to give you my Patriots mock pick, which I'm going to skip now from the fifth pick to the 14th pick, which is what the Patriots hold this year, which is their highest pick in however long. I know they took Mac Jones with the 15th overall pick in the 2021 NFL Draft. They have the 14th overall pick since they had an 8-9 record this past year. And I have them taking a cornerback, defensive back out of Penn State, Joey Porter Jr., one of my favorite players in this year's NFL draft. I think if he goes to the Patriots, I think they're getting a steal. And I know his over-under now in some draft books is 16.5 about where he's going to get drafted, or 15.5 in things, so whether it's the top half of the first round or the bottom half of the second, first round. I think he's a premier talent. The Patriots can get him at 14th overall pick. I think Patriots fans will fall in love with him right away. I'm a very big fan of his. You see a guy with long arms, 34-inch arms, very long wingspan. He's tied for the longest arms of any defensive back in this year's NFL draft. 34-inch arms, long wingspan, and that long wingspan can help him break up passes, which he did great at. He did great at Penn State this past year, last few years, I should say, breaking up passes and making up ground by using his hands and getting it within the receiver's arms and breaking up passes. He was great at that this past year. So that long reach will come into play. And obviously, Bill Belichick loves to trade down. So this could be a potential trade down spot for the Patriots, which they've been able to do just about every single draft that Bill Belichick wants to trade down, he trades down. That's just a concept for Patriots fans. I know that they'll never be surprised with the Patriots trading down since they do it just about every single year. But if the Patriots add a guy like Joey Porter Jr., and if you look at his stats, right, you look at his box score, right, of his stats, right, only one career INT, and let me get his, his tackle totals here, which I didn't have that noted here, but let me get his tackles totals for you as well. Just one INT over his career. He is also the, I believe he's the son of former NFL defensive back Joey Porter, but let me see here. Joey Porter Jr., let me see. He had one interception over his career, and that came in the 2021 season when he was a junior. This past year, 10 games played, 21 solo tackles for 27 total tackles overall, with 11 passes defended, one fumble recovery, and no interceptions. You look at his career overall in four years, 86 total solo tackles, 113 total tackles overall, two tackles for loss, a sack, and an interception with 20 passes defended and a fumble recovery. You look at it, the 11 passes defended in the fumble recovery, and obviously the 27 total tackles for a guy that was on the outside his whole entire career in college. 27 tackles isn't bad considering there's probably slot corners on the team, maybe the linebacks, edge rushes are picking up tackles that he could have on potential run plays or sweep plays to the outside. But if you look at his box score, you see just one interception. I think a lot of people get too caught up in looking at cornerbacks and safeties and defensive backs in general. And look at interceptions. They say, oh, this guy only had one interception, so I don't really want to draft him in the first round. Yeah, but you could draft a guy 
that was great in college, that had four or five interceptions. Let's, let's look at DeAndre Baker. Yeah, former New York Giant first-round pick from Georgia. The Giants took him in the 2019 NFL Draft with that third selection in the first round, and that did not work out for the Giants. Let me see here what his college stats were here. DeAndre Baker, seven interceptions in three years as a starter for the Georgia Bulldogs with uh, one fumble recovery and 23 passes defended, also adding 116 total tackles over those three years. I, I should say four years. He did play as a freshman just one game and had a, a tackle. So 115 tackles in the three years as a starter, adding in seven interceptions, 145 return yards, and 23 pass defended. You look at that and you say, wow, seven interceptions. I want to draft a guy like that. But you never know if that's going to translate to the NFL. You never know if a cornerback's going to translate to the NFL. I mean, the Oakland Raiders, the Las Vegas Raiders, I'd say, but the Oakland Raiders at the time when they drafted a lot of their first-round busts, they could tell you better than anybody. Sometimes cornerbacks do not. Sometimes cornerbacks do not translate to the NFL. Look at Gary and Conley. Gary and Conley took out in the first round, twenty fourth overall in the twenty seventeen uh, NFL draft out of Ohio State. That didn't translate. I think a lot of people got caught up in looking at interceptions. And so Joey Porter Jr. You look at Joey Porter Jr. You look at you. You only see one interception. But what you don't see in a box score, right? Is his playmaking ability very agile? Quick on his feet, big playmaker, can break up passes. Obviously, his tackling stats don't look great, but he can get involved in the run game as well and tackling on the outside and sweet plays. And whenever the running back goes to the outside, maybe in a dump off as well with screen plays, he can get involved there. Does have a decent frame as well, six foot two, 193. So a little bigger of a cornerback. Has a good jump as well. But one thing that he did struggle with, and this could be a reason that the Patriots don't draft him, he did struggle at times last year with the penalties. And that's one thing Bill Belichick is not a fan of, is giving the defense, or giving the offense, I should say, extra plays and more yards. Bill Belichick is never a fan of making mistakes, especially costly penalties. And we'll see where Joey Porter Jr. goes in this draft. I think he's good enough to be a top 15 pick in this year's draft. I think Patriots fans would be, big fan, would be a big fan of him. You add him alongside guys like Jonathan Jones and Jack Jones as well. I think he'd be a great, or Marcus Jones, I should say, I think Jonathan Jones came back with the Patriots, I believe. I think he got a new deal from them. Yes, he did. Jonathan Jones did get a new deal from the Patriots, uh, which ended up being a two-year deal. Let me see what the total was here. I'm just getting that down. Forgot what the total was, but he got a two-year deal, Jonathan Jones, to return to the Patriots. It was two years at... I'm trying to look for the money here, but don't see it. Let me see. Regardless, bring back Jonathan Jones. You have Marcus Jones. Making plays in Jack Jones as well. Obviously the Patriots, Jack Jones and Marcus Jones. Let me see with Jonathan Jones. Jonathan, Go- Jonathan Jones got two years, $19 million with $13 million guaranteed. And then you look at Jack Jones on the Patriots. He's young. I believe he was only a rookie last year. So was very good for the Patriots last year. Made some plays on offense and defense. Oh, that was Marcus Jones. Made some plays on offense and defense. And then Jack Jones was great. Defensively, obviously, was a first team all Pac 12 in 2019. Was underdrafted in the NFL draft fourth round pick this past year. Could be a potential gem for the Patriots of the future. And I think adding a guy like Joey Porter Jr. to Marcus Jones, Jack Jones, and Jonathan Jones as well, adding him to that secondary is only going to make that team better. So we'll see what happens there. And now with my last mock draft pick that I'm going to give a preview of, I'm going to talk about the New York Giants really quick before I get Paul from Southion. 
I, the Giants, who had the 25th overall pick in this year's draft, 9-7-1 this past year. They did get a playoff victory over the Minnesota Vikings in the wild card round, end up falling in the divisional round to the Philadelphia Eagles. I, the Giants, taking cornerback Deontay Banks from Maryland. Originally, I, the Giants, taking safety Brian Branch here from Alabama. I have him actually going now 18th overall to the Detroit Lions. The Giants do love their defensive backs from Alabama, though. Xavier McKinney, Landon Collins. Aaron Robinson was a former Alabama defensive back before transferring, LS, uh, before transferring to UCF. So you have Robinson, as I said, transferred to UCF. Landon Collins, Xavier McKinney, three guys there at Alabama defensive backs in that Giants secondary. So I thought there's a potential chance the Giants could go get Brian Branchard, but I have him going a little bit early, 18th overall. So I have the Giants going Deontay Banks, a cornerback from Maryland. And Banks of Maryland, I think, would fit perfectly in defensive coordinator for the Giants' Wink Martindale system. I think it fit perfectly. Six-foot cornerback, 197. Very good tackler. Probably the best tackling cornerback in this year's draft. In 2022, as a senior, Banks was playing in 12 games for the Maryland Terps, making plays in 680 snaps, had 29 tackles with seven stops, adding in nine pass breakups, an interception, and also giving up a 71.4 quarterback rating overall in plays that he's been targeted. I think it fit very well, though, in the Giants' system with Wink Martindale. Wink Martindale's system is a system where he loves sending multiple defensive backs on blitzes. He loves going single coverage and sending as many guys at the quarterback as possible. A, a, cover, a cover one or cover none blitz, if you want to call it, right? He likes having no guys over the top, if possible. Maybe one guy at safety. The other safety blitzes in. Maybe blitzes in a linebacker as well through the middle. He loves going through a cover none system. Where it's just naked coverage, one-on-one -on, -one on the outside, one-on-one -on, -one on the slot. And sending in as many guys at the quarterback to try to wreak havoc as possible. And I think Banks would fit perfectly in the system. I think Banks would be great in this system with the Giants. Especially considering they're looking for another, another cornerback. Banks last year, 38 total tackles, adding in, uh, in an interception and also eight passes defended for Maryland. Six foot one, as I said, has good reach as well. I think they list him at, let me see here, six foot, they list him at 197, but six one, he was listed out in college, but the combine had him at six foot, I believe. But you look at his speed, 435, 40 yard dash, did very well at the combine. And he's a very good, I should say, elite press cornerback. He's very good at being a press cornerback, meeting the wide receiver at the line of scrimmage and jamming him. He, and if you look at what Wink Martindale loves out of cornerbacks, he loves defensive backs that can jam at the line of scrimmage and make it as hard as possible for the wide receiver to get off his route because you want to make it as hard as possible for the wide receiver to get downfield and get open and have the quarterback be able to have the time to look at him and go through his progressions because the more time you take for the wide receiver to get into his route and get open for the quarterback, the less time there is for the pass rush to get to him. The more time you give a quarterback, the less time there is for the pass rush to get him. The more time you give a wide receiver to get open, that means there's less time for the pass rush to get the quarter, to get the quarterback because they're going to see an open receiver and they're going to get it to him as quick as possible. But when you add a guy like Deontay Banks, who's ran a 4-3-5, very impressive 40-yard dash. I think it was the best out of cornerbacks in the combine this past year, or if not the best, the second best. And you had a guy that's great at press coverage. So I think Wink Martindale would love to blitz with him. 
And the Giants need good press cornerbacks to slow wide receivers down. They were struggling last year uh, opposite of Adoree Jackson. Fabian Monroe was decent as the cornerback too, but I think he'd probably be better maybe being a reserve cornerback. And you have Adoree Jackson as your cornerback one, your cornerback two being hopefully Deontay Banks. And then maybe in the slot you have Donnie Holmes and Cordell Flood. I think that'd be a great cornerback room there with a couple of guys off the bench, including Aaron Robinson, could be a potential cut candidate, but Aaron Robinson also maybe Fabian Monroe if they want to bring him back. But we'll see what happens for the Giants. They also have some other young defensive backs as well. They did lose Julian Love to the Seattle Seahawks, so they'll be in the in the market for safety as well in the draft. So we'll see what happens there. But only two career interceptions for Deontay Banks, so he's not a ball hawk. But as I said earlier, you can't really look at interceptions and say, oh, that guy's a great cornerback just because he had six interceptions. He could have six interceptions just because he was targeted a ton. He could have six interceptions because he's a great ball hawk as well. I mean, it could go both ways. But I think when you evaluate these guys, you can't just look at their stats in a box score. There's a lot more to it. So give me one second here. I'm going to finish my NFL mock draft predictions for my 1.0 mock draft. I'm going to finish that in a podcast upload later this week. I'm going to have Paul from Southie come on here for about 15 minutes. Give me a second to coordinate with him, and I'll be back with you guys in just about a minute. Thank you. So here I am, back with Paul from Southie. He's back live on air. And just before I get him on, I'm going to give you a quick rundown of all the scores across everything. Right now it is BC Baseball is in the bottom of the eighth inning against Harvard. It is 4-4 to four in the bottom of the eighth. BC having runners on first and second base with two outs. Cam Leary at the plate. He's 1-3 of three on the day with a walk, a double, and a strikeout. Hitting 248 on the year and a 486 slugging percentage. Great power hitting uh, lefty here for BC. And it looks like he recorded out. So he struck out swinging. So it is going to the top of the ninth inning, 4-4. Four to four. As for the... This is a surprise here, which I was talking about the Miami Heat a ton the Miami Heat are down currently in the second quarter with 6.49 to go, 53-36 to to the Atlanta Hawks. And if you look at the Miami Heat, they're getting killed on the glass, 22-17, to 17-15 in assists. They're getting out-assisted by the Atlanta Hawks. Atlanta Hawks have 17 assists and the Miami Heat's 5. And if you look at what the Hawks are doing shooting-wise, 54% from the floor. The Heat is shooting just 40% from the floor. The Hawks are 7-20 from 3 for 35%. And the Miami Heat, a 2 of 11 from 3 for 18%. Tyler Harrow, 1 of 4 from 3 with 9 points and 3 rebounds. Jimmy Butler, 10 points for the Heat. And then you look at the Hawks. Bogdan Bogdanovich has 2 threes. He's 2 for 4 from 3. Sadiq Bey is 2 for 5 from 3. And DeJounte Murray is 2 for 4 from 3. DeJounte Murray, 6 points. Uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, 10 points. Oh, Bojan Bogdanovich, excuse me. Bogdan Bogdanovich is on the Detroit uh, Pistons. Uh, it is... I know this is Bo, uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich. 10 points for him, and then 8 points for Sadiq Bay. And Trey Young has 7 points, 5 rebounds, and 6 assists. As for the Red Sox, they are currently down to the Tampa Bay Rays. It is 5 to 1 in the bottom of the sixth inning. The Red Sox did pick up a run, though, off the bat of uh, Masataki Yoshida, who grounded into double play with uh, it was. Rafael Devis scoring from third base. 5-1 to one there in the bottom of the sixth. And then the Bruins are playing the Washington Capitals tonight. In that game, it is 0-0 with 12 minutes to go in the second period. So here we are, live with Paul from Saudi. How are we doing, Paul? Good, Joe. doing tonight? Doing well. Thank you for coming back on. Second week in a row, right? Yeah, that was a very good draft analysis. Appreciate that. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you for coming on. Much appreciated always. Uh, so we'll start off here. 
which we can start anywhere. We're going to talk probably a little bit about the Red Sox, a little bit about the Celtics, and maybe talk a little bit about Zay Flowers as well. Uh, maybe talk about the NBA play-in as well. Uh, we'll start off with anything you'd like. Do you want to start off with the Red Sox, Celtics? Where would you want to start? About Zay Flowers. Let's start with Zay. Let's do it. Going to be a first-round pick in this year's draft. I am going 22nd overall to the Baltimore Ravens in my mock draft. I know you're a big Zay Flowers fan. was an electric player all four years at BC. And if you look what he did as an Eagle, Zay Flowers is one of the best players in BC football history. He was BC's all-time leader in career receptions with 200, their all-time leading receiver in receiving yards with 3,056, and their all-time leading receiver in touchdowns receiving wise with 29. Also has their best receiving mock in a single season in receiving touchdowns with 12, and also tied the receptions mock for the most in a single season with BC in their history with 78. Zay Flowers, one electric player, only 5'9", 182. That could obviously hurt him a little bit in the draft. Also, he's dropped a couple passes over the middle here and there, but what do you see out of Zay Flowers when you see his draft film and also, also seeing him play in person for four years, all four years at BC while I was here? Zay was with, uh, obviously, the Eagles. So what do you see out of Zay in his four years at BC? Oh, what a tremendous talent he was from the second he got in here. He was a deep threat right away. He put up, like you just said, historic numbers with an offense that pretty much struggled and only won three games last year. But um, with Phil Jerkovic throwing down the field, um, he was a touchdown maker. In 2021, yeah. Yeah, explosive speed. I mean, all season when we were at the games, we talked about him possibly being a first-round draft pick, and, and now I see him as high as 17 to the Steelers in some marks. So uh, good for Zay. Yeah, Mike Tomlin is the obviously the head coach of the Steelers, and his son is a teammate, a former teammate, I should say now, that Zay's going to the NFL draft, but a former teammate of Zay Flowers, uh, Dino Tomlin, who you're a fan of Dino as well. He's a wide receiver for the BC Eagles. Yeah, I, I think he stepped up a little. But, boy, I forgot that fact that uh, maybe that's why they're talking about Tomlin uh, maybe taking him because he, he definitely came to BC to see his son play. 100%. So he- First-hand look at uh, Zay. Definitely. Like you said, Zay's a touchdown machine. As a freshman, four touchdowns in 13 games. Had 10 touchdowns total, nine receiving in a rushing, a rushing touchdown as a sophomore in 2021. Five touchdowns in 2021. The offense struggled a little bit in 2021. Then in 2022, the offense struggled even more as well. But Zay was that positive light, even with Phil Jakovic and Emmett Moorhead switching in and out of quarterback. Zay Flowers still had 12, catch, uh, 12 touchdowns for 78 catches in 1,077 receiving yards. Also adding in 12, 12 rushes for 40 yards and adding in seven rushing uh, seven punt returns for 43 punt return yards as well. So you obviously see electric playmaking ability, and you think he could be a first-round pick, or very well should be a first-round pick in this year's draft. No question. He, he, he's been dynamic since he stepped on the field at BC. I'd love to see him in an offense with a great quarterback like Lamar Jackson. I think... It looks like Lamar Jackson should be back in Baltimore considering Odell Beckham Jr. just signed with the Ravens. One-year, $18 million deal. I'll get your thoughts on that. And Zay Flowers, and which Zay Flowers would add to that offense heavily with that speed. You have Odell Beckham Jr., Zay Flowers, and Lamar Jackson. That's electric speed there. And they also have a great playmaking tight end in Mark Andrews. But Odell Beckham Jr. signing there looks like should mean that Lamar Jackson should be back. It looks like they were on FaceTime as well. Uh, so I don't think Odell would go there if Lamar were to leave. So... You think he'll be back with the Ravens, right, Lamar? He should be. I think it's the best fit for Lamar, and I don't see how they can uh, have a decent offense without him. Uh, Definitely not a great weapon. If uh, you know Odell is signed on, so uh, I think he'd be foolish. Although from what I'm hearing, 
they're probably going to franchise tag him, and that's not what he was looking for. Yeah, I don't think he's going to play under it. I don't think he's going to play under the franchise tag. I think he's going to want. I think he wants a deal. I think yeah, he wants a deal before that. Price. That's the price he's paying for not having an agent. You're right. You know, his mom and himself are his agent. Yeah. Oh, it's it's. He it's hard. would have been. Oh, he's a great talent, and uh, I think you can win with them. Definitely. Uh, but he's still waiting for uh, you know a deal. Definitely. So talking about Zay, obviously, great player, obviously, and he's been a great player all four years at BC, but even better the last two, three years. Obviously, freshman showed a lot of talent, but last two years you saw playmaking ability that could translate to the NFL. I think, obviously, that's the reason he's going to be an NFL first-round pick. And like you said, scouts are looking at him as a first-round, mid-first-round, maybe middle of the pack of the 20s, if not 15, 17, 18, somewhere in that range. Where I would personally take him, is 30 to 35. And that's not taken away from Zay Flowers. I just think if you look at his size, 5'9", 182. A good build for a 5'9 receiver. He's strong, very durable. But he did drop some balls over the middle. And th- that obviously is a cost. When, you, when you're going to the NFL, you've got to be able to make plays. You know, you got to catch everything that comes your way. He's a great playmaker, but you got to catch everything that comes your way. Yeah, he's not, he's not a great over-the-middle guy. He's good, and he's certainly not a liability. But his, his biggest strength is, you know, Speed. down the... Deep. I mean, he was beating double coverage all year. Definitely, you gotta get his. You gotta get him the ball with open space. You know, that's oh, yeah. what it is. He's, he's had to bring down even after a catch. He's as you know that explosive speed. Um, yeah, it's hard to bring him down. Definitely. So translate now. You want to talk about the Red Sox really quick? Sure. So we'll talk about them. They're trailing right now 5-1 to one in the top of the seventh inning. They had a good showing yes, in showing in yesterday's game. They had a chance late in the game. Bases loaded, two outs. Rafael Devers up at the plate in a one nothing ball game. Devers ends up coming up short, striking out. But they're 5-5 five and five right now. If they lose tonight, they'd be 5-6. and six. They're playing the Tampa Bay Rays, who currently are 10-0 and, and have started with the hardest start in MLB history since, what was it, 1987, I think I saw today? Yeah, I think you're right. 1987. First 10-0 team since 1987. And I believe, if I remember right, that was their first one-run ball game. Yeah, they were blowing everybody up by at least four runs, I think, until last night's game. Four runs or more. Yeah. Four runs or more in every single game they play the season, which is nuts. Which is absolutely nuts. Four runs or more besides that one nothing victory for the Rays over the Red Sox last night. But look at who they played, right? The Tigers, the Nationals. In the athletics. I mean, I'm not taking away from them. 10-0 is impressive on who you're playing, right? It's the major leagues. You still have to win your games, right? But yeah. I had them being, taking a little bit of a step back this year, and I'm going to stay with my predictions. I still have to record an episode on that. But 10-0, very impressive. But I think I think the Sox could split with them this series. Even if we lose tonight, I thought the Sox could have split this series. Even when they lost last night, I said, okay, they're just going to win 2-3 or three now. How do you feel about the Sox? Obviously, tonight could be a lost cause being down 5-1. But what do you think of the Sox the next couple nights? Well, I'd love to see Stale come out and stone him tomorrow night and end this win streak. I agree with you. I I thought going in, they could split the series because, you know, Tampa Bay didn't really beat the iron of the league. And Pavetta pitched great last night in his second start. I mean, he shut him out. Um, yeah. Right? And then we gave up the one run with Martin late in the game. But um, And I, I've seen the whole game tonight with Whitlock. A couple of bad pitches, but he had great movement. His pitch count was low. He got burned with a couple of those home runs, but um, I think he had like five or six strikeouts in only five innings, so he had great movement. I mean, he did leave a couple in the zone that they turned on, um, but I'm hoping Spale can come up big tomorrow, and we you know, we end this streak. 
Definitely. We need Chris Sale now more than ever, right? He looked pretty good last week against Detroit. So we need him obviously back to the Chris Sale we you know we know and we love. Uh, we obviously need that considering the Red Sox need a spot in that rotation. Besides Pavetta, the starting rotation's been struggling, you know? Yeah, the second time around, though, um, I, I think they each, each got better from what, right? I mean, even Pavetta, yeah. he pitched he pitched great the first game, and then last night he pitched even better. So I think a couple other starters. Um, didn't cut a Crawford? Yeah, he got shelled by the Pirates at home, and then he come back. Yeah, he did some, get shelled. Even though it was right, but he, I think he had a shutout for most of the game. Crawford's last game, which I'll give you his stats here, uh, which – Timmy Loftus noted too many home runs early on the Reds, uh, early on with the Red Sox. He's right. I mean, we were down a lot of games early because we were giving up home runs early in the game. I mean, Cutter Crawford, his first start, Pittsburgh losing that game 7-6, gave up seven earned runs in four innings, including three home runs. The next game, though, Detroit, five innings, five hits, one run, six strikeouts, no walks, lowering his ERA from 15.75 to 8. You're right. The second time around, the pitching got better, and that's one thing that you can bring in to the rest of the season that you can have some confidence in, right, is the pitching got better. It all starts with pitching, and yeah, that's the significant point that they all got better their second start. So, um, if the, that holds true, Chris Dale could stone this team tomorrow. I agree with you. Then I'm hoping he does. I really hope he does. And if you look at this Red Sox team, they're looking for Spock. Just losing Adam Duvall just about a day or two ago. Now it was two days ago, right? Sunday made a dive in center field, rolls over on his wrist that he actually broke a few years ago. Now and got surgery on. Uh, it might have been even last season. I believe it was last season. Good surgery on the broken wrist last year and then just re-injures it now. And if you look at how he started this year, was leading the MLB in slugging percentage with a 1030 slugging percentage, a 514 uh, on base percentage, 455 batting average. He led the league in total bases, OPS plus, OPS with a 1544 OPS, 34 total bases, and also four home runs and a triple. I mean, he was great. He was great. And obviously now you lose him. That's a big loss. Major four to six weeks is a killer. I mean, it gives guys like Dahlbeck and um, you know other guys that can come up from from Worcester. But he was just yeah, he was like leading the, all of baseball in, in power numbers and even his average was what he was over four hundred, wasn't he? Four fifty five. Uh, clutch too. I mean, he won that game with a walk off against the Birds, I think, and uh, he hasn't cooled down since now that he's hurt. So um, I think. I would agree with you. Yeah, you need you need a back healthy, and I'm not sure the timetable. Do you see a timetable or? I thought I heard four to six weeks, but you know, I mean, we both like Jaron Duran. Yeah, he's got big speed and and he's a very streaky hitter. When he's in a groove, he can give you a couple of hits, and he's you know he's probably a triples maker when he when he gets a hold of one with that speed. So, um, hopefully, they can take advantage of that um, you know opening for the like guys like Dahlbeck and him. Definitely. I'd love to see Dahlbeck and Duran get more plate appearances. Obviously, Dahlbeck's playing tonight. I'd love to see Duran get a chance. He was doing great in spring training, and I like the way he plays. Uh, obviously, he did struggle defensively in center field, but they did get a little bit better over time, and his bat did look good in spring training. Obviously, with less you know, less trials, obviously more trials and more at-bats, that would go down. But one impressive thing I saw, you know, when I'm looking here at Adam Duvall's stats, he usually strikes out about 33% of the time, right? Last year, 101 strikeouts and. 315 plate appearances, 101 strikeouts, and those 287 at-bats. This year, just five strikeouts in 33 at-bats and 37 plate appearances. That's very impressive. Oh, yeah. His his swing is made for Fenway Park. He's going he's gonna to tattoo that wall with, with doubles. He's going to hit them over that wall. 
I mean, I, if he if he was healthy the whole year, he would have to be a thirty plus home run guy, easy. I would agree with you there. I would agree. It looks like the Rays hit another home run, huh? Six to one yeah, now. But it, he just put one up in the zone and was Lau. Josh Lau, hit. yep, second home run in a row, right? Two nights in a row for him. Brandon Lau hit the one last night. But this is uh. I think this is Josh Lowe, and then Lowe might be pronounced a little differently. Josh Lowe. Brandon Lowe hit the home run last night, right? Yeah, I think um, one of them. I think, yeah, one of them had Brandon a Brandon Lowe run. last night hit his third home run of the year last night to win that one. It, they they used to play small ball, but now they're getting power numbers. Yeah, well, if, actually a great stat here from Alex Spear of the Globe, your boy. 28 home runs by the Rays. It's the second most through the first 11 games of the season in MLB history. Only the 2,000 Cardinals had more home runs in the first 11 games. When they had 29, the Rays have 28. So, yeah, that, it would uh, make it really sweet if, if we end this streak tomorrow. I think we could split. I honestly thought we could. Yeah, it's up to stale. I mean, we we faced their best tonight. McClanahan's great. His changeup, he just, he whipped so many guys. It would come down looking like a strike and then tail off away from the right-handed hitters. He must have struck out three or four guys swinging on the same pitch. Definitely. I would agree with you. Sale is huge, obviously. And like Timmy Loftus said, he just texted me, pitching is key. He also asked a question. So here's, here's a question for you. How do you feel about the, the, the uh, pitch clock? Are you a fan of it or you're not a fan of it? I know it's early on, so you got to still adjust. But how do you feel about it as of now? Well, I, I, I didn't like any of the rule changes. I mean, I'm a traditionalist when it comes to baseball. But, but I understand if they're worried about attendance and interest in the game, especially with the young kids who everyone says about baseball, it's too slow, then I don't have a problem with it. It wouldn't be my institution. I wouldn't do that. I you know, I'm, I, I don't mind when the pitcher can throw to first base as many times yeah. as he wanted. To me, baseball is a chess game. It's meant to be slow. There's no clock. You're right. It's only you know, sport without one. It, now there is a clock, I guess, but... The three and a half hour games, or then when you get the the Red Sox and Yankees, they they play four hour games. But when the Yankees were, were coming up with this strategy of taking you know taking many pitches to get the starter out of the game, you bring in the middle relief, and that's usually a team's weakest part is middle relief. The Yankees won four out of six years with that strategy, and then guess what? The Red Sox adopted it in the two thousands, and they started winning World Series. You're right. You're right. That's a fact. And Timmy Loftus agrees with you. He said he agrees with you every point there. And I, I would agree with you there. I think the pitch clock, yeah, it does make the game go quicker, right? I think that was their goal, right? To get the game to go, right? And and move. Successful, yeah. Because we're, we're playing games in two and a half hours or less now. So we're, we're at least a half hour ahead. So it should keep the fans happy. So I'll be on board. But again, I would never make the changes that they've made. And Timmy said we were robbed with Rafi on opening day with that crazy rule. Because didn't he strike out on one, right? Yeah, he did. That, that, he did, but that was tough. Oh, when you call a guy out in a, you know, in crunch time, you know. It's tough to do that. You're right, for sure. So I'm, I, I would agree with you there. I think they obviously were trying to do it to try to get people in and out of the ballpark quicker. But the, the way I see it is if it cuts the game down by 25 minutes, how many more fans are you adding? You know, I mean, it does make it go quicker, I guess, for the journalists and, uh, you know, I guess the common fan that – has tickets and they like the Red Sox, we get to go home quicker with their kids and stuff. Yeah, that does obviously make it quicker. But I think people that want to be the ballpark then are still there now. I don't think you do, I don't know if you add that many more people. Do you know what I mean? I'm not sure. Yeah, they have to, it take a couple of years of trial and error to see, you know, statistically. And I'm sure there'll be people, people that'll be doing analytics on it. But I don't know how many more people you add by saving 20 minutes. Are that many more people going to watch the game because it's 20 minutes quicker? I mean, I don't know. People are on their phones anyways watching the game regardless, right? 
Yeah, time, time will tell. I mean, people are going to start saying, oh, it doesn't take three hours to go to a game anymore, or three and a half or four hours. So I'm, I'm sure it's going to make the fans happier. You're right. I would agree with you there. So we'll see there. And I agree with Timmy. He said you aren't really adding too many more fans. He agreed with you about the Rafi rule obviously being tough on opening day. And he said he wants to be there for a longer time. He loves Fenway. And you love Fenway Park more than anyone, I know. So you would agree with that. It's your favorite place. Oh, I love Fenway Park. Yeah, we had season tickets for probably five years, I think. And I we kept changing it. We, we used to be at the, the right field power pole. And then up until like COVID, we had like the third baseline. We were like 10 rows up. And then we lost the whole season. So we, we never renewed them after COVID. But um, I think we're in center field, maybe halfway up. Right in section, but those are great seats. As long as you get an aisle seat, you can see the whole game. It was beautiful. Definitely, we love. You loved it, no, for sure. You love Fenway, just like Timmy noted. Um, so that's obviously that with the pitch clock and, and the Red Sox. Obviously, one thing I want to note really quick: BC baseball just won in the bottom of the ninth inning, a walk off home from Nick Wang. He's a transfer from Holy Cross. Came over from Holy Cross as a freshman. He was actually the Patriot League Rookie of the Year last year. Coming over to the Eagles, now as a second year college baseball player, and just hit his walk off. Home run, big one for the Eagles. That's actually the second bean pot win in a row they won last year in 2022. Now this is 2023. This is their 15th championship. Harvard only had five. Northeastern only has six. UMass Amherst has seven. So BC's heavily in the lead there. 15 they have. Now BC winning their 15th one tonight. Harvard in third place with, or fourth place, I should say, with five. U.S. Amherst in second with seven, and the Northeast with six. Harvard had a chance to tie Northeastern today, but obviously they had a good battle considering BC is the number 11 team in the country, and Harvard was 1-13 to begin the year. They're on an 8-2 and two stretch. I believe it was a 9-2 stretch, I believe I said at the beginning. Let me see. I noted 8-1 and one stretch in the last nine games, now 8-2 in the last 10. Pretty impressive, though, turnaround for Harvard. They can be proud of themselves, and they end up losing the game, obviously, in a walk-off. But impressive run for them. Yeah, it's a good win for BC. They're in a tough conference, and they got a pretty tough schedule so um yeah do come in this weekend i know you, you know you want to go to the game the spring game saturday as well so we didn't even talk about that but uh obviously bc duke's coming this weekend you're gonna be trying to you're gonna try to see that game right one of them and me and my wife plan to go over there and then also the uh spring game as well bc football I'm, i know you're probably excited to see dino tomlin and joe griffin elijah jones will be back for another year Sheeta salah emmett moorhead i'm sure you're excited to see all those guys I like what I saw with Emmett Moorhead last year when he came in. I mean, he was he was pretty much raw, but I I liked his skills, his hands, his feet. He could throw the deep ball. He could throw the touch pass. I thought he had very good mobility. Um, so once he gets used to this offense, even though I think we're bringing in a new coordinator, but um, I think he's got the talent to you know to get us up to five hundred. I hope. I would agree with you. Hopefully, to get BC back on track. We'll have season tickets regardless, right? Um, one other thing I want to note here, the Bruins are up 2-1 to one in their second-to-last regular season game. They're playing the Capitals at home. They're up 2-1. to one. They got a goal from Brad Marchand and then Tyler Bertuzzi right after that in the second period. Bertuzzi's got a goal. Marchand's got a goal and an assist, so two points from Marchand tonight, two assists with David Pasternak. And then the Capitals responded right back with the Nick Jensen goal, so it was 2-1 to one with 2.40 to go in the second period. As for the Miami Heat game, the Miami Heat went a little bit on a run here. Uh, let me give you a quick rundown of that. It was a... Blues a 9-0 run. Let me see here. 11-0 run, Heat run. It is now 65-50 to at halftime. The Hawks got a little bit sloppy in the last six, five or six minutes or so in the second half, or in the second half of the first quarter, or the second quarter it was, so 
I repeat that, the second half of the second quarter, uh, they got a little bit sloppy, and that obviously helped. And Miami Heat get back in the game. It's now 65-250. So as for the Bruins, though, Timmy asked, can the Bruins win the Stanley Cup this year? I mean, they just set the NHL record for most wins in a single season, winning 63 games. Do you believe in this Bruins team that they could win the Cup? Well, they certainly have proved that they're the best team in hockey all year. Um, but we all know in sports, the best team doesn't always win when it comes to the playoff. Um, You're right. Um, I think if they get to the finals, I think they win it. I would agree with you there. I would agree with you there. If they can get there, I think if they get to the Stanley Cup final, I think they can win it as well. It's always about who stays healthy, who gets hot. It's about who gets hot and who's playing the best hockey by the playoffs, who gets hot in the playoffs. Who's playing the best hockey before the playoffs? I mean, you want to be playing good hockey before the playoffs, then you want to hit your stride in the playoffs and go on a run, right? The Giants were playing good football going into that 2007 and 2011 Super Bowl runs. Both of them, they were playing good football, and they got even better in the playoffs. That's what you want. You want to find your stride in the playoffs and play great football or great hockey, great base, whatever it may be then. So one last thing we want to know before I let you go, I'll talk maybe a minute about the Celtics, and then I'll let you go. I know obviously you've got things to do, but we'll talk about the Celtics really quick. Could be playing the Hawks, it looks like, as of now, unless the Heat come back. You'd rather play the Hawks, correct? Yeah, I, just like you said earlier, I'd be afraid of Jimmy Butler. No Me question. too. I would agree with you there. Jimmy Butler just takes over games. Just takes over games. Timmy says the Bruins aren't fired. He also thinks the Celtics will be NBA champs. How do you think the Celtics fare in the East? Obviously the Bucks and the Sixes, and also the Cleveland Cavaliers. That's three tough opponents there that you got to go through, or at least you need to fall in front of you. Yeah, Cleveland gave us a run for our money this year. I think they beat us at least two times. And, I mean, everyone's afraid of Milwaukee. You're right. I would agree with you there. So, we'll see what happens. Milwaukee's probably the team to beat in the East, right, you'd say? I think so. I, I think they got an edge over the Celtics. Celtics are too inconsistent, well, you know, halfway through the season. I think that's a weakness. When, when Milwaukee went on that, right? Yeah. They went like games in a row? It was, yeah. 18 games in a row, I believe it was. Let me see. I'll get that down. But it was like 18 games in a row. And then they also had, uh, what it was, uh, Chris Chris Middleton fully getting healthy and stuff around that time. 16 games it was. 16-game yeah, win streak. So very impressive run there for them, uh, which obviously considering that they obviously have the talent to win the NBA Finals, just like the Celtics do with the Eastern Conference Finals, it's going to be fun to watch. So anyways, Paul... Thank you so much for coming on and always giving me your input and obviously having the time to, to always come on and, get, and be a great guest. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Okay, Joe. Thank you, and uh, we'll do it again. Yes, appreciate it. Hope you have a great rest of your night. Thank you. You too, Joe. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you. So there he is, Paul from Southie. Thank you so much for coming on. Always a pleasure having him come on and talk everything sports. Thank you for Timmy for your input as well over text. He thinks the Celtics will be NBA champs. I think it's going to come down to those four teams I named in the East. I think it's going to be a great battle in the Eastern Conference. And then Milwaukee, obviously. I think the Celtics can beat Milwaukee. I think last year they beat Milwaukee in seven games. Without Chris Middleton, you add Chris Middleton, it gets to be a little bit tougher. But I think the Celtics can still obviously win the Eastern Conference considering they were great in the... Eastern Conference in the regular season overall, they were great. And they kind of hit a little bit of bump towards the last four-fifths of the season. The last fifth of the season, they hit a little bit of bump. But I think that's probably just them waiting for the playoffs. I think that's them waiting for the playoffs. And a lot of teams get a little bit bored with the regular season, right? When you know you can play in the playoffs, you just want to stay healthy and get to that point. Some teams get a little bit bored. Like the Bruins. I thought they could get a little bit bored by win 50. And they say, oh, we're already in good position. We're already quenched a playoff spot. Let's just relax. No, the Bruins kept playing high. They won 63 games, set the NHL record for the most wins, which is very impressive in an NHL single season. I think the Celtics got a little bit bored in the, in the middle of that 
last fifth of the season. They're going to go to the board. But at the end of the day, you want to be playing your best basketball by the playoffs, and if they get hot, I mean, the Celtics can, can win the NBA Finals. I think it's going to come down to those four teams in the East. So we'll see what happens. I'm going to give my NBA playoff preview later in the week once the play-in games are over. Just to run down the scores really quick again, 65-60, to 60, the Hawks are up against the Heat in the first half. So 60 uh, or 65 to 50, Atlanta's up over the Heat at the end of the first half. I think the Heat can still come back. They went on that big run towards the end of the first half, uh, which obviously they're capable of going on a run considering Jimmy Butler could just take over at any moment. So that's that score. As for the Bruins score, they are currently up 2-1 to one at the end of the second period with about 10 seconds to go. The Red Sox, that game is just about over for the Red Sox. Unfortunately, it's 7-1 now. A Rosarena reached on a fielding error by Tristan Casas, scoring Yanti Diaz from third base. It is 7-1 in the bottom of the seventh inning. I do have hope in the Red Sox, though, to make a little bit of a run in the next two games. I wasn't as confident in the Red Sox going into this season until just about a week before the season, starting to get a little confidence. And I said, why not? I mean, at the end of the day, if you look at this Red Sox team, not many people are counting them in. And when the Red Sox get counted out like they did in 2021, no one came in with expectations of them being a playoff team at all, considering how bad they were in 2021. They made the ALCS and lost to the Houston Astros, who end up winning the World Series. So, or the Braves actually end up winning the World Series that year. I apologize. Astros end up winning last year over the Braves. But the Astros did... If, apologize, I'm messing up all these World Series. I apologize. The Astros beat the Phillies in the World Series in 2022, but in 2021, the Astros won the AL pennant, ended up losing to the Braves in the World Series. So you lose to a good team there, and everyone counted the Red Sox out then. You count the Red Sox out now. I think this team has enough what it takes to at least be a playoff team. I think they'll be right on the border. So we'll see what happens there. As for BC, they end up winning that game, as I said, on a walk-off home run off the bat of Nick Wang. So there you have it, BC getting the win 5-4, winning their 15th Beanpot Championship trophy. Very impressive game there for the number 11 team in the country. And obviously, Harvard put up a great, great effort as well. And look at that Northeastern game earlier. It was a ton of offense. So there's pretty much good games all around between the consolation game between Northeastern and UMass Amherst. Northeastern ended up winning that game, as I said, 18-11. Northeastern actually, if you look at that box score, they had 20 hits in that game. 19 hits. 13 hits for UMass Amherst, three errors apiece by both teams. Ton of offense there. And if you look at this game between BC and UMass, or BC and Harvard, BC ends up winning that game 5 to 4. And a very good close game there going down to the bottom of the ninth inning and a walk off hit, home run off the bat of Nick Wang. And I said, anyways, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it. I will be back with another podcast upload in the next few days to finish my first round of the. NFL draft, my mock draft there, and then also give an NBA playoff preview probably by Thursday or Friday once the playoff uh, games are settled, once the playing games are done and the playoff matchups are settled. It'll be Saturday, it'll be the start of the first round of the playoffs. So once the playing games are over on, I believe it is on Thursday, I will give you guys a rundown of my whole entire playoff preview. It is tomorrow, actually. The playing games end tomorrow on Wednesday, and then every team is Thursday, Friday, off before Saturday is the start of the NBA playoffs with the Nets and the Sixers. Looks like will be the first game of the playoffs with the Sixers hosting Brooklyn at 1 o'clock on Saturday on ESPN. So I'll keep you guys updated on that. Thank you guys so much for listening. As always, I appreciate it. 
Thank you, Timmy, for always giving in great input over text. I do really appreciate every single time you do give me your input since it's always great having somebody listening in and giving their thoughts. It gives me also something to talk about. So much appreciated, Timmy. You're the biggest fan of the show, and it does mean a ton to me. Thank you to Paul from Southie for coming on, the sports encyclopedia, the sports wizard. Always knows this stuff. Thank you for coming on and taking the time. As for everyone else, thank you so much for listening. I'm going to give a few quick shout-outs, as, as I always do. Shout-out to the Loftus family. Shout-out to the Keith family. Shout-out to the O'Malley family. Shout-out to Auntie Lisa. Shout-out to my siblings and my parents listening in. It means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Shout-out to my Uncle Frankie. Shout-out to the sports guru, Mike Hurley. And shout-out to everyone else listening in. It does mean a ton to me, and I apologize if I did miss you guys along the way. Shout-out to my cousins, Frankie and Chris as well, and my Auntie Teresa as well. Thank you guys for listening in. It does mean a ton. Hope you guys have a great rest of your night. I will be back live on air next Tuesday night here on WZBC from 7 to 8 o'clock on Tuesday, April 18th. Thank you guys. Have a great rest of your night. Take it easy. Take care and stay safe and well. Thank you.